Thank you for listening to the Following Films podcast. Today, my guest is Ross Riga. I had him on the show to talk about his latest project, Rutherford Falls, which debuts on Peacock on April 22nd. The show was co-created by and stars Ed Helms and features one of the best ensemble casts I've seen in years. I also talk with Ross about his work on uh, King Kong as well as on the uh, indie hit Kings of Summer. I hope you enjoy the show. I also want to thank Bookman's for sponsoring it and thanks to Fort Worth for letting me use the song at the end. Thanks. Good. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to do this. I really appreciate it. No, my pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, is it, would, do you go by Chris or Christopher? Either way. Uh, I usually go by Chris, but if anybody calls me Christopher, I usually know who they're talking about. So <laughs> Only when you're in trouble, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I, I was actually really excited to talk to you about this because um, the first thing that stood out about the show was the look of the show to me right away, that it just didn't look like uh, <laughs> a standard sitcom. And so I kind of started going down this rabbit hole of thinking about the way sitcoms look and how they're normally presented, and then kind of expanded that out to thinking about film as well, and how comedies, a lot of the time, they they just don't seem to spend as much time on the look of the film. Um, now, you've done stuff that I've actually really appreciated with Kings of Summer in the past, but then there was this weird crossover where the only modern comedy that I could think of that just came to mind right away was The Hangover. And so oh, yeah. there's this confluence of uh, you and Lawrence working on this together where that movie, say what you will about, you know, some of the certain comedic elements, maybe not aging so well, but I think it looks great though. And so I think the the two of you working on this was uh, kind of a nice surprise. Ah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's uh, I, I wish I could say it was by design, but um, I think we both came at the project from, from separate angles. Um, you know, my connection to uh, Sierra, the creator and, um, and then his connection through Ed and, uh, through the producers. So we, um, <clears throat> it was atypical in the sense that um, I, I didn't speak with him until after I was brought aboard. And I think he was simultaneously coming aboard. And so we, we shared a couple of voicemails after we were both were on. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I, I had pitched the show to be a really, um, you know, elevated. And I, I, I frankly wasn't really interested in doing a, you know, more of a sitcom looking uh, high key comedy. And so I, when I pitched, I was like, let's shoot, uh, let's shoot full frame and let's, let's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, light it with single source. And, um, <clears throat> we talked about the Coen brothers a lot. And, uh, and th- these were all things that Larry had been thinking when he, when he first talked to them. But <laughs> when I said, when I called him back after he left the first voice mail for me, I was like, first of all, this is, this is not what I signed up for. Like I, I, I was late to the game watching Joker. So I'd seen Joker maybe a month earlier, um, you know, and then of course it was like just diving into Larry's work. And then suddenly I'm finding out I'm doing three episodes of a show with him. So, um, but fortunately for me, as much pressure as I felt, uh, he was super, uh, you know, he's, he has all these, he's very opinionated and he's one of the smartest people I've ever worked with. So he can handle all these things simultaneously, but he was also very complimentary. And he said, you know, uh, you know, explained a lot of the stuff he, he liked my work and, and then in the end, he always deferred to me to make the decisions that a DP would make. So it was it was kind of a great combination because then I was able to learn a lot from him without feeling micromanaged and, um, you know, and, and without feeling too intimi- intimidated, although uh, uh, I felt tr- like I was trying to just be a sponge as much as I could while we were working. So, Well, and I, I assume that there has to be a, a shorthand that all directors and DPs have. But when he's actually been in your exact position before, that probably makes that shorthand even easier. Yeah. Yeah. In some ways it does. And, you know, there's a bit, the big thing 
um, that that becomes a real advantage is that when when it comes to scheduling and the way we stage scenes, when you have uh, when there's a cinematographer's mind in, in, in your director, then you, you know that they're always going to have your back in terms of where, where you're looking at what time of day and what's going to look the best. And so that really helps because it takes one thing away, um, you know, that you always have to kind of try to protect as much as possible. Um, but then at, on the other side, I, I, I really get to, I didn't come up as an operator or an AC really. And so I, I haven't had as much experience being on set with other DPs. So I, uh, I've always considered that kind of a, a, a strength and a weakness because in, in some ways I really would love to see, to be exposed more to how other people do things. But then on the other side, it's kind of nice because I'm, I'm making it up as I go in essence and, um, and learning from my, you know, from my crew and my collaborators and kind of asking them, what would you do in this situation or what else could we try? And, um, you know, and in the case of being with Larry, then I'm, <clears throat> I'm not on set with, with him shadowing him as a DP, but um, I'm getting his insight, um, and, and getting, you know, a little bit of perspective into the way he works, which I, I think in a lot of ways is different than the way I work. He, he's, um, he's on headsets all the time. So he's communicating because he can handle that bandwidth. He's communicating with everybody. Um, and, uh, and sometimes he jumps in and operates and, um, and of course, a lot of these are on different types of shows than what we did, but um, we ended up using headsets partially because of the COVID of it all, um, just to keep spacing. I'm, I'm so used to being really close with all my people and coming in and out, and uh, we weren't able to do that as much. And so it kind of made sense for us to to uh, use a system like that, which fell much more into Larry's comfort space than it did mine. So um, there was kind of a meshing of, of techniques there. And, and just to hear how he used the headsets while we were working helped me helped inform how I could make use of them too, as a great tool. And, and it worked out great. So, yeah. So when were you filming this then was, did it start pre pandemic or? Yeah, we started prep. Uh, I started prep mid February. Um, and we had just really started ramping up in prep wow. when we went on a pause, which inevitably became, became a, like, we have to let everybody go and we're going to, you know, we want to start up, but we just don't know when. Um, and then we started back up. Um, I was back in the office, I think the second week of August or the first week of August. Uh, and then we started shooting right after Labor Day. So first week of September. <clears throat> and, wow. That's uh, going to be, a, first. it's going to be strange to have that much of a gap in between it when you're just in the middle of it and have the, I mean, there's a million reasons why the last year has been strange, but I mean, just from that professional getting your mind around something, I know that it, just in anything that I've done that feels like I'm so disconnected from the reality of my normal job. And it just, what was that experience like when you're going back and it's so physically different and everyone's wearing masks and there's all these new protocols and other thoughts that you have to take other than just doing the job. Yeah. Yeah. Very different. Um, I think there were certain ways that, uh, having just gotten into the meat of prep and then having to go down, you know, we had a bunch of sets built. We had had a bunch of conversations and um, we were starting to light stuff and rig stuff. Um, so when we came back, I certainly had notes and all these things, but there was a lot of stuff that we kind of picked up and set down and started over. Um, be, just because they, like we built, they, we built more sets because we had to have more stage work and there were adjustments mm -hmm. we had to make. We were, we were two cameras full time and we added a full time third camera crew. Um, not so much so we can shoot three simultaneously, but one, you have the, the baseline protection that if, you know, if you get a positive test and you have a whole crew that goes down because of contact tracing, you have, you, you don't go down to one camera. Right. Um, but then we could also use that to hopscotch and stuff. So, um, there were a lot of things that 
changed with the coming back into it of it all. But, um, but it definitely like in a way it helped us kind of prep twice. Um, hmm. So that was a, a little bit of a benefit, but, but yeah, the workflow on set is, you know, now there, you know, people are, it seems like things are, I hate to use the word normal, but in terms of the amount of stuff that's going on right now, it's, it sounds like it's insane out there. I mean, I'm, I'm doing another show now and um, I just, everybody's working. It's hard to get gear. It's, uh, it's, it's great. I think everybody's just so grateful to be back at work, but um, the general protocols now it's, it differs from show to show, but they're all <clears throat> generally the same in and, terms of people getting tested and wearing masks and shields and, you know, all that. Did you ever have a moment when um, you're re-ramping up again and think, well, maybe Miller's Crossing might not be the best influence for this. Maybe we should <laughs> simplify things a little bit. I'm not yeah. sure if that's the Coen brothers you were referring to, but as soon as you said that, that's the one that popped in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, the th yeah, it, I think the, there are a lot of references. I mean, especially with Larry, he he has this this website he he developed called called Shot Deck, which is which is pretty amazing, um, and it's just references searchable database of, of film reference stills and, um, and uh, you know we're all very visual people, so it was really helpful because we use that a lot, and we're pulling from films. There's not a I I've been telling him I think that that there it's there's we're, we're worthy of a section of of miniseries and TV shows and um and stuff and I think eventually he could get to that because there's so much amazing uh visual work uh in that in that sphere too but uh you know so we're pulling stuff from uh, like Burn After Reading was a big one and mm. Serious Man and um, I mean, we were, we were also like talking about lighting from Peggy Sue got married. So our, our <laughs> references are like all over the place. Um, but, uh, but then we would talk about that in, in terms of like, well, what are other, sh what are other shows or similar shows that, that have the level of visual storytelling that we're after? And, um, you know, like he admires glow in Atlanta and, um, and there's shows like that, that we talked about too. And, um, and we looked at the politician because the, the way the way they kind of frame things and center things up is really interesting. And um, and Larry is also, you know, does a lot of interviewing work. And so he has exposure to talking to a lot of these filmmakers and DPs and, and about how they work. And and so he would we, he'd roll into the office and be like, hey, I've got an idea. And suddenly we're talking about something that he thought of, you know, after having an interview the night before. And then we were watching episodes and scrolling through stuff and just talking about so, so we're pulling from all these different places and in a way it's, it's super ambitious, but I think that's the way you have to start a project that you're, that you're trying to, um, you know, approach from the ground up and design a look for And is that something that you get pushback on as far as, um, with comedy, it's not the, the standard approach for it. And I've always wondered about that, that if you're going to make something, why not make something that's interesting to look at? So it's if the jokes are are landing, well, let's just three camera it, call it a day instead of taking this, making it a more arduous, and I would use the word thoughtful, but um, a longer, <laughs> more difficult process. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I think a lot of the visual stuff in my experience, especially with comedy, is you. I tend to go in and and I I want it to look great. I want it to to serve the story and feel unique and. Um, when it comes to how much it costs to have certain cameras and lenses and how big is the lighting budget. Uh, I think in the end, I'm, I feel supported as long as I'm not going over budget. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of room. Um, 
but to say, oh, we need this extra thing, or this is something that's you know, shooting large format. The cameras are more expensive. Uh, the lenses are more expensive. Uh, so jumping into that sphere, uh, we felt a lot of support, which was great. And that, I think that was one of those things where we just both kind of pitched it separately in the beginning and they were really into it and we made it work. Um, but I think that it, outside of the, the setting up of the show and staffing and all that stuff, um, I think the place where you run into the, that kind of comedy um, here, it's a comedy and here's how it needs to be shot is that you're still beheld to um, giving options in coverage, depending on what, what you're working on. Um, giving options and the timeline is tight. You know, we went from our standard kind of 12 hour time frame to 10 hour days and it was pretty stiff. Mm. Like, pretty, and, and that's due to, we want less time where everybody's on set together. And so, um, you know, they're not making the scripts 20 minute long uh, shows, you know, to do that. So we're just, we're finding ways to solve that, move faster, um, get the coverage. And so, you know, doing elaborate oneers and and uh, doing camera setups that take a lot more time. Uh, it's not that you can't do them, but you have to be that much more thoughtful about how to put yourself in the position to get that and not compromise on time and lose all the other pieces that you need. And so that's the place where I think we we had to be really strategic. And um, because in comedy, it's like it, it's true a lot of the time is a comedy plays great in wides, but. Um, but character also plays great in, in close. And, and so that was one of the things that we, uh, we really wanted the wide, uh, the, the large format for was to be able to be a little bit wider on our lenses and get physically closer to the actors without distorting their faces and, um, having, ha having the environment splay out behind them and, and feel that, but also have it fall off a little bit. And you get all that stuff, uh, in large format in a way that you don't in, in uh, smaller sensors. So, um, you know, little things like that, that we, we try to do to help ourselves out and, um, you know, and I think that that, uh, in the end that it worked out because we, we were able to make the days and we were, I don't think we felt compromised. We certainly felt like we could have done more had we had more time, but you know, you look, you look at what your parameters are and then you, you try to squeeze as much as you can in there. Well, I think that, um, when you take the time to actually sp to invest in the characters, when it's either just development, spending time with them, where every moment, every beat isn't a joke and you let them breathe and be human for a moment, you're more invested. It doesn't matter if it's a drama, a horror film, a comedy, um, you care more about it. In fact, I think that it's a better crutch than leaning on jokes because if you care about it, you care about the people, it doesn't need to be hitting with a joke every, you know, rapid fire every 30 seconds to keep your interest in it. You know, some of my, all of my favorite comedies are definitely things that are, based in humanity, you know, Harold and Maude. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm not even sure how much of a comedy that is when I really think about it, but I mean, that's one of my favorites. So it's just like, it's those kinds of things. That, and I think you're kind of playing in that similar space where this gets really broad, but then it pulls it back in and there's actual humanity and heart in this piece, which is something that it sometimes happens in the same sequence, but it's always there. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like if, if there's a, if there's a place to ground things in, um, you know, where there's real emotion, and things get serious for us for a moment, then you have a backbone where the, the jokes play funnier um, and more authentically. And, um, you know, and part of that starts with the, con the, the content, of course, but it's even just the way you shoot things. Um, you know, there's the classic thing of, of picking up an insert and it's very easy to be like, oh yeah, okay, we've got the scene and we need to get an insert on the watch and an insert on the piece of paper he's reading. Um, but there's also a way to, to avoid pointing to things so much. And I think, 
it goes the same way with with the writing and the um, performance where if we're always just pointing to the jokes then I, in a way it almost kind of softens the the humor and so in the same light when <clears throat> if you can find ways to get the information across visually without having to to cut to a close up of something and then cut back to the character and make uh, make shots work where it feels more natural and organic and in a way it almost feels spontaneous um, I think that's that's another thing that's that's a constant um, uh, battle because it's not it's not easy to do and it doesn't work all the time and um, and uh, you know it, it's kind of similar to the the mindset of when you shoot on stage where you have access to all the the um, <clears throat> you know the uh, amenities and the the conveniences um, but it's very easy to shoot it where it looks like it's done on stage. And so you go a lot of the time, Larry, I mean, Larry's, Larry's a, a location guy for sure. And so we were always talking about, we've got to, we've got to make it feel like we're not in the most convenient spot. We've got to feel like we're in the corner and we want to be a little bit wider, but we don't want to pull a wall. And, um, and so even though we had access to a lot of that stuff, we tried to kind of constrain ourselves and work more like we were on location. So it didn't feel that way. And I think it's the same thing that you're talking about, which is uh, if things feel too convenient and too readily available, then, then the edge falls off. Today's episode of the following films podcast is brought to you by Bookman's. So the last time I was in Bookman's, I Decided I wanted to get another book about film, but this time I wanted something that was focused on the award season, something about the Oscars. And so I ended up finding Mark Harris's book, Pictures at a Revolution, Five Movies and the Birth of the New Hollywood. And this is a book that I've been meaning to read for a while now, and I was reminded of it with Mike, uh, Mark Harris's new book about Mike Nichols. And so this book tracks five different films that were nominated for best picture in 1968 so there's two films that we still remember today as being uh, really important they were kind of ushering in the new era of film uh, bonnie and clyde and the graduate and then there was a couple films that were just um, very successful that year Um, those were the in the heat of the night and guess who's coming to dinner and then the other one was the financial disaster that also represented old Hollywood. It was kind of uh, indicative of films that were out of style at that point, and that was Dr. Doolittle. And so it takes these five films that were nominated for Best Picture and looks at how each one of them represented something that was going on, the shift in Hollywood at the time. And so they, while they seem like completely random films when you start reading the book and they start putting this whole story together um, Mark Harris does a wonderful job of um, telling stories about films that I might not have had that much interest in in fact I want an entire book about just the making of Dr. Doolittle it was such a shit show that there needs to be a movie made about the making of that movie so yeah I'm really thankful that I was able to walk into Bookman's pick this one up this is something I've been meaning to read for a really long time and it only cost five bucks it was a great deal so next time you're looking for something remember Bookman's has your cool covered enjoy the rest of your show thanks Well, it's something as simple as um, in theater when actors started turning their back to the audience. That was something that was a revelation when that first happened, that you could actually turn your back and perform that way. And it kind of pulls you in just by having, instead of having the you know rule of 180, that when you go beyond that and you start to break those 
things that we're accustomed to seeing that I think that it does pull you in. And, you know, when you feel the setup of, of a typical sitcom, you kind of, it's comforting, you know what this is, you've been down this path before. Um, and so I think that that makes, there's an easier buy-in when you do things that way. But I also think that the depth of enjoyment is cut off as well. Yeah. 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 It becomes a little bit, uh, not to sound judgy, but it becomes a little less mindful, I think. I and mean, you don't have to think as much. And I, I, I'll be the first to admit that I have, there are shows and things that I like to watch that part of it, part of the, part of the reason is just so I can relax. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm one of those, one of those kids that went to film school, but before film school, I wasn't a film geek. I was watching like my favorite stuff to watch was Tommy boy and dumb and dumber and Austin powers. And, you know, they're all like comfort movies. Um, you know, not, not to say that they're not well done. It's just, uh, it's comfort comedy. And, um, and I still, I still love that stuff, but that's not, uh, that's not necessarily stuff I'd say I'm referencing when I'm doing my work. Uh, you know, if somebody is going home and watching Battleship Potemkin every night, and that's the kind of where they want their mind to be at all the time, I, I mean, I I understand appreciating those things, but that's not where you want your head to be all the time. That would be a a miserable life. I mean, if you have only, you know, the sort of what was that the um, the Russian montage, you know, that element, and you're focused on that instead of having some Chris Farley. That sounds like a pretty uh pretty boring life to me. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, and I think it's a good lesson in uh in not getting too precious with things too. In a weird way, that's a skill in and of itself. Is it's important to be passionate and, and stubborn about what what you're looking to achieve. But there are, I mean, in, in filmmaking, things change all the time. And, um, you know, I worked with the director, work with the director, but uh, we, we started working together years ago and he does a lot of real life and doc, documentary stuff. And he would always say, the key is don't be, don't be reactionary, respond. It's always about, it's not like, don't, don't let your emotions get in the way. Something's inevitably going to change and you just hmm. have to change course with it or you're going to miss the moment. <laughs> Um, and I think that no matter how much control you have over, over your subject and over the situation, things are going to change and you, you need to be able to rely on your instincts. And, and in that sense, you can't be too literal with your references. You know, it just becomes part of your, um, part of your taste, you know, part of your aesthetic. And do you find that working in independent film, low budget film, um, help prepare you to work in, a sh- where you're shooting, you know, three episodes of this show. And so you have to knock these things out quickly. Is that a similar skill set, or, I mean, I, I don't know what they spent on your show. It looks like it was a very expensive show, uh, Rutherford Falls. I have no idea, but I, it's one of those things that could go either way in my mindset. I'm assuming that one episode of that was probably more than Kings of Summer, the entire budget. But then again, it could be way off. I have no idea how, how no, that you're works. Def- you're definitely right about that because Kings of Summer did not have much money at all. <laughs> okay. Um, but uh, that's an interesting question. <clears throat> I hadn't done any TV prior to Kings of Summer and Kings of Summer. So you could say that was the first kind of like long form narrative thing I did. Jordan and I had done a ton of comedy stuff, like short comedy stuff. And that was like when he and I started working together was the kind of the beginning of when there was like web series was a thing. Um, and one of the first projects I did with him was this, this like web series thing for Ford um, and he, you know, he's always been good friends with Thomas Middleditch. And so Thomas was like his, one of his video game nerd buddies and would, they would shoot shorts together all the time. And, and so I did a bunch of work with that. It was like t- Thomas and Kamel and TJ Miller, all those, all those guys, everybody was, everybody was hanging out together and working on stuff. And 
Um, there was a there was a bunch of um, it was all shorts and narrative stuff, but the way we shot it was very film school style. It wasn't I wasn't thinking about coverage, um, you know, in the way that I you have to think about coverage when you're shooting a, a show like Rutherford Falls or a network show or a um, you know when you have time limits, you really have to. There's a, there's in I guess the way my brain looks at it is there's there's a lot of kind of um analysis and graphicness and math that you look at you look at how a scene is being laid out by a director and and you're looking at your clock and you're like, okay we're an hour behind and now i've got to get this scene in an hour and a half what can i offer up and um and part of it is like it's almost like this matrix of lines lays over the set and you're like okay well i could do this this and this and um and that's part of that just kind of like second nature as you do it more and more um and you almost have to start fighting against it because once it starts getting too mechanical then you lose that kind of what makes a what makes, in my opinion, what makes a movie like Kings of Summer interesting is that it it kind of is just done shot by shot, um, and uh, and so I think yes, in a way, it, it informed things for me because I could look at a bunch of different pieces and see how they cut together and and see where the holes are and see see what really worked and see what we didn't use, but learning the structure of shooting a an episodic show. Uh, I think is for me was learning on the fly. Really, the first couple of episodes of bigger stuff I did, I did a show called Selfie for ABC, which was like my first network show. Um, after I'd done um, my first cable show with Jordan called You're the Worst, mm-hmm. um, which we still shot much like we did Kings of Summer. But when I did Selfie, um, Julianne Robinson was the director, and she's she's done everything under the sun and is super experienced and talented. And and <clears throat> I was fortunate that she kind of took me under her wing and we did our first setup and uh, I, I kind of had set for a, a few angles, but the, but keeping the cameras alive. So when the actors move somewhere else and the still turning it into a new shot and letting it evolve and that all that stuff was not in my repertoire. And she had the patience to kind of be like, well, you need to make sure that he, he, you keep it alive. Right. And I was like, <laughs> Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then I just like <laughs> turning on the fly. Unfortunately I didn't lose the job, but, uh, but it worked out. <laughs> And do you think that, um, God, I, I would imagine that shooting something like stand-up comedy has to be incredibly difficult because there's, as far as making that interesting to look at and that when it's just a, a monologue and cutting that and putting that together and I, how, what's that process like? Because that seems like one that would be incredibly challenging to me. Well, and I don't know if you're referring to it directly, but you're making me think of mashup, which was a thing yeah. that I did with Jordan, um, and uh, which is is really was kind of the culmination of all these shorts and all those people. Because you look at the like, I look back at that stuff about a year ago, um, trying to pull some clips, and I was like, so many talented people came in and out of that, and they were just just actors and co- comedians that would come in for a scene here, a scene there, but um, doing the <clears throat> doing the um, visualizations and all that stuff was very much in our wheelhouse. But when we shot the live show, which we had to do first, um, it's, there's definitely not a, Oh, I shoot, I shoot TV shows. I shoot narrative stuff. So shooting a multi-cam live thing is going to be easy. It's, it's kind of the opposite. Um, And it's not a documentary either, even though you can't, you can't predict it as much. So really the thing is, is like, it becomes very difficult. You've a stage, a proscenium show has been shot so many times and there's in a way, there's only so many ways you can shoot it and you have to decide what are, what are you trying to tell? One thing that we did 
um, that we hadn't seen prior. And I think is kind of the standard now is, is shooting it with cinema cameras and like we were shooting on red cameras. And I think mm -hmm. it, it might've even been the red one at the time. Um, but where we, and we had, we had the big screen, the big pixelated screen behind them. So when we would, we would go on our longer lenses, it would, it would fall apart behind them. And that was a whole thing that we kind of fell into. And we're like, this is great. We could <laughs> Um, and so that was, that was a big thing. And that was a, that was a fight for us too, because mashup didn't have a lot of money either, but kind of by virtue of shooting the pilot, the way we did, we, we locked ourselves into this. Well, we have to keep making it look like that. So how do we have to make it work? And so instead of shooting with, you know, bringing in a truck and just bringing in your multicam setup, we needed to, we were sourcing red cameras from, we'd get a couple from a rental house and we knew a guy who owned a body. And then we, we knew somebody else who could loan us one. And so we piecemeal together like five or six camera setup with all these reds and, and the idea of being able to run them all through like a common switchboard and stuff didn't exist for us. So it was like, we just put a bunch of monitors really close to each other and we could sit in front of it and, um, so it was kind of a fusion of, of both, but, but from a style standpoint, it was, it was kind of like, well, we just didn't want to feel like, well, let's just rattle this off and make it, you know, make it look like any, any live show. And I think, I think, I think it worked out pretty well, but most of it, I think we found is, is like, you always have the classic thing where you hire the jib person who's done these, a million of these and they're like, well, you're going to want to put the jib over there because you're going to want to sweep into here and then you're going to sweep out of here. And they've done a million of these shows and I, this is my first one and I'm the one that's supposed to tell them, no, I don't want to do that. You know, it's hard not to second guess yourself. Um, Cause typically I work the other way around where you're like, look, you've done this a million more times than I have. How would you do it? And then that, that helps me learn about new diffusions from my key grip or the ways to rig lights or, you know, lighting my first big night exterior. How do you do that? You know, without it looking so artificial. And um, those are all things you just, I didn't, like I said, I didn't, I didn't come up watching another DP do that. So I'm just guessing. Um, and that's where having, being able to rely on these people that know so much more than me, which is everybody, um, just helps, helps me do my job and make me look better than I, I probably should. Do you find that lighting daytime or nighttime is more difficult though? Because it seems like daytime you can, um, under light sometimes and rely on natural lighting and you end up much more victim to weather, um, which ends up in a lot of smaller budget things. That's just how it goes anyway. I mean, if you're shooting outside, it's going to happen, but um, you, know, you end up with the wrong cloud coverage. It can be really difficult to match. I, I would assume. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a day exterior is day exteriors can be challenging unless you're, you're at the top of the top where you have the budget to bring in construction cranes and, um, it, you know, otherwise you're really playing a game with nature the whole time. And you, you, you might budget three hours for a scene. You start the scene in the morning where it's hazy. And then an hour later, you don't know if the haze is going to lift, but you have to assume it would. So if you're committing to the haze look, then how do you cover, uh, to match? And so it becomes a thing and then it's time, even if you can afford the condors, the fly swatters, you're, where are you positioning them? And where do you know the sun path is going to be? Um, even that when you have the when you have the manpower and you have the budget, um, it's still, it's still a challenge all the time. And it's like, there's the general anxiety underneath it all, uh, to make sure that you can get through it, you know? Um, so, and I don't do a lot of artificial lighting when I do day exterior. So it really ends up being a lot of grip. Um, and I think, uh, I think that can be the most challenging, um, lighting and night exterior can be challenging if it's, if it's big, um, but uh, in fact, I'm, I'm doing one in a couple of weeks that we've been prepping for out at this big uh, nature preserve. And there's 
it's difficult to to get um, uh, condors driven in because the ground is unstable and um, where we need to put them. Uh, it's hard to put them in there without seeing them in shot. So then we're talking with VFX about how much how much erasing can we do and um, and so part of it is it's getting that design set up. But once you get that set up, the nice thing about a night exterior is then it, it you have control over it the whole time. You know, you're not dealing with the elements in the way that you do during a day exterior. So um, I don't know. I guess in short, the answer day or night, it's it just it really depends. I can't narrow it down. Um, I lighting day interiors is it, I really enjoy. I really enjoy um, uh, you know, picking one source the way, the way the sun works. And, and mm. so if you're pushing it, that's what we did on stage with our day, our day inter- interiors on stages, you just <clears throat> decide where the sun is coming in and that's going to inform the entire thing. So no matter how many lights you end up using, um, you start with, you start with one really. And then, and then from there, it's like, okay, well, I need to continue that in this corner. So let's add a little supplement, but I want it to all feel like it's coming in naturally. Of course. And that's a, uh has to be an unusual or problem that I'm, I'm assuming that when you were shooting your earlier films, the idea of, okay, we just, the budget for erasing cranes in the background, that has to feel slightly surreal. I would imagine at this point, just because there, I mean, I'm not saying it's necessarily imposter syndrome, but there's plenty of times where I'm doing things in life. I'm like, how the fuck did I get here? And just, I, I would imagine that has to occur every once in a while. Well, yeah, and there's a big there's a big growing pain of I think um, coming up doing stuff where you have no money you you're not you can't even allow yourself to think in certain ways. And then when I started getting like when I did selfie, I'm still my my mindset is is part of part of it is I've never done it that way before, so I don't know that I can ask for it. And the other thing is is a little bit of a pride in being capable of doing um, much with little. Uh, but then you go on some, you go into some of those situations where it's it's expected, and it's if you don't ask for it, people are like, "Oh wow, bold move! It must have some kind of plan in mind. Like this will be impressive." They don't care if you want if you're going to spend the money, but if you don't want to, then they're still expecting you to deliver something like that. And and so a lot of it is as you as I've grown grown up and had access to more things to learn to not think so much about. Um, what it costs necessarily. The, the, the first thought has to be, well, what is the, what does the script say? And what's the story we're trying to tell and, and what do we need to make that happen? And it's not about fancy toys. It's about how do we make it happen? Um, and there's a lot of times that you look at it and you say, well, that to me looks like I need, it's a huge genetic exterior. I need five. It's going to be five condors. It's going to be, um, a crane and it's going to be a, an e-cart with a stabilized head. Um, and you look at it and, you know, when you're usually on a, on a show, there's a lot of dialogue that goes, well, let's look at it and let's come back to the writers if we need to and mm-hmm. say, okay, well, is it going to be shorter? Or what if it's an interior scene or what if it's a, um, but part of, part of my job is to, is to kind of be a reflection back and say, here's what, here's what I'm receiving. And I'm, here's how I, I will make it happen, but I need X, Y, and Z pieces. Um, and uh, for me, learning to be comfortable having that conversation of, um, okay, well, here's here's how we should do it, um, and being confident to stand behind that, and that uh, a producer is not going to look at me and be like, oh, you're a terrible DP. You know, they're <laughs> they're expecting that. <clears throat> um, um, the 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 place where you have a chance to shine is when they say, well, how can we do it? 
can we do it with half of that? Or how can you make the adjustment? And then you, you show that you can be resourceful. And that's the opportunity, I think. Um, but yeah, it is, it is surreal because you sit there. Sometimes I sit there on set and you're just like, what are we doing right now? This is <laughs> because in the end, <clears throat> I've had many, many conversations on set where you, you, you drive in, you get to base camp, you're whipping by all these trucks and trailers and equipment and people. And then you, and then you get in the bus and then you get to set and you rehearse and suddenly your world is like three people. <laughs> and there's, there's like a camera, there's, there's an actor and a director and every, all the other stuff is just, it, you know, disappears into the distance. And you realize like in a lot of ways, what, where the, where the, uh, you know, the boots hit the ground, it's, it's the same as it would be if you were shooting an indie with your buddies, uh, you know, um, and there's just so much more infrastructure. Uh, and uh, so it's easy to, for that to look intimidating from the outside, but in the end, it kind of is that it's just, it's the same thing, you know? <clears throat> is there a challenge that you haven't had yet that you want as far as a, a genre or anything like that, like a Western, a musical, anything that hasn't come up that you would say, this is something I'd really like to try to tackle? Um, I don't know if I would say like from a creative standpoint, I think mm -hmm. that there, I just have a lot more room to do. I'm looking to do more action, more drama. You know, I've done a lot of comedy and I enjoy it. So it's not that I don't, but I, I just want to expand. Um, I, I think steps for me that I need to take and that I'm, I'm looking to take are things that involve more, more VFX and more post work, because frankly, that's, um, you know, having that skill set and having that, you know, under your belt, uh, helps you get the next job. Um, and, uh, even though it doesn't necess necessarily mean you're doing anything fancy, it's one of those things, like if you haven't done it, then people don't want to hire you to do it. Um, so, you know, for instance, Jordan has obviously went straight from Kings of Summer to doing Godzilla or Kong. Um, yeah, the, the Venn diagram of the MonsterVerse <laughs> and the indie comedy world is really, there's a lot of overlap there. Yeah, well, with the, the Kong vs. Godzilla release, you see like Mike Doherty. Yeah. Like, um, and uh, so when Jordan did that movie, clearly I wasn't in a position to, <laughs> to, to be his DP, although I did. He, he had been pushing for me to do nature stuff, second unit stuff, which we ultimately ended up making happen. But to be able to just even introduce myself to the producers early on, I had to meet with them as if I was pitching. And it's meanwhile, all these huge uh, people I look up to are pitching on the movie. And I'm like, I'm kind of an asshole here. But I also just like, I just got to swing for the fences. And that's what Jordan expected me to do. Um, but that's the kind of thing, you know, you, it's tougher for a DP to make that kind of leap. In fact, I don't, I don't know if it's ever, I don't know what the closest uh, similarity would be, but uh, um, part of, part of the requirement is there's so much responsibility on your shoulders that you have to prove some of those things. And some of that's just like getting the right opportunity or you're doing a show that happens to have a big sequence. And so you get to, you get to dabble in it a little bit and show that. Um, so even if I was to do a smaller uh uh, a smaller film or a smaller, a commercial spot or something that had some more elements of that, that would be, um, that's something I'm really looking to do more of because I, I need to show that I can. So well, most of us have our jobs, no matter where we work, because somebody liked us at some point in time. Uh, because if you, if you weren't a jerk, when you were at the last job, somebody said, yeah, I'd like to work with that guy again. And so I think that you're going to be finding those next steps pretty easily because you're done really impressive work and you don't seem like a prick. So I think those two <laughs> things, they seem to mean that you'll get the, the jobs that will get you there. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, 
we, you know, we, we we're on set. A lot of these shows we're on set we spend more time with each other than we do with our own families. And so when you're on a string, you know, if you're doing a string of nights for a couple of weeks, it's very tough to have two young kids. And, um, how old are your kids? So, uh, my son is four. My daughter's two and a half. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, and they've been able to travel with me. So I've had my wife and my kids with me when I've, when I've worked out of town, but even still it's, it's amazing. You know, there's, there's runs where I'm, I'm hanging out with my camera operator and I know what he's been up to more than what my wife has been up to. And, and, um, and that's one of those things that's just tough in our business, but we remind ourselves all the time is like half the battle is enjoying the people that you work with. Otherwise, why are you doing it? You might as well be at home with your family. I mean, it's honestly, it's where we'd all rather be, but, uh, you know, we have to make it work. So, um, I've always felt that way about our work. It's, you know, I hear stories about how the business used to be and people, it was almost like a cool thing. If DPs were throwing things around and yelling at people and firing people. And I'm like, man, I would not be cut out to be a DP in the eighties, you know, it's, so. I don't know if it's a, a decrease in the amount of cocaine in the world, or if it's the, the social media element to it, where it's just that kind of stuff just doesn't seem to fly anymore. The stories yeah. they get out there, if you're difficult to work with, um, there's rare exceptions, people that are, and they just have that thing um, where people want to work with them still. But like you said, if I'm going to take time away from my wife and my kids, um, damn it, I, I got to enjoy the people that I'm doing it for, that I'm doing yeah. it with. So it just yeah. doesn't make sense. I can't justify being gone for 12 hours if it's not spending it with people that I like. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Or I guess it had to be a really good opportunity. <laughs> so <laughs> and I knew that it was short-lived and not going to you know, be for the rest of my life, then maybe. Not to name names or anything, but yeah, you can insert whatever name you are thinking of right now. And there, there's a couple. So, Well, cool. Well, thank you so much, Ross. I appreciate you taking the time out of the day. And it's this is a great show. And I'm really looking forward to what are you working on now? What's the next thing that's coming down the pike for you? I, I'm doing uh, the second season of uh, Walking Dead World Beyond uh, right now. So uh, I did the first season a couple of years ago and totally different show. <laughs> um, but I'm in, uh, I'm in Virginia right now. So we're shooting, uh, um, we're, we're shooting until, uh, end of June. Outstanding. Cool. Well, I mean, that definitely has the, uh, visual effects element that you uh, yeah. get to play around with. So outstanding. Cool. Well, um, I, I did have one last thing. If you're thinking of, uh, I'm not sure if you've seen it. Time enough to figure you out. Time enough to write this down Wish me luck, give me hope
always crack.